Chapters 11 to 15 of Of the Shortness of Life by Lucius Annius Seneca, translated by Aubrey Stewart. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 11 In a word, do you want to know for how short a time they live? See how they desire to live long? Broken down old men beg in their prayers for the addition of a few more years. They pretend to be younger than they are. They delude themselves with their own lies, and are as willing to cheat themselves as if they could cheat fate at the same time. When at last some weakness reminds them that they are mortal, they die as it were in terror. They may rather be said to be dragged out of this life than to depart from it. They loudly exclaim that they have been fools and have not lived their lives, and declare that if they only survive this sickness they will spend the rest of their lives at leisure. At such times they reflect how uselessly they have laboured to provide themselves with what they have never enjoyed, and how all their toil has gone for nothing. But those whose life is spent without any engrossing business may well find it ample. No part of it is made over to others, or scattered here and there. No part is entrusted to fortune, is lost by neglect, is spent in ostentatious giving, or is useless. All of it is, so to speak, invested at good interest. A very small amount of it, therefore, is abundantly sufficient, and so, when his last day arrives, the wise man will not hang back, but will walk with a steady step to meet death. Chapter 12 Perhaps you will ask me whom I mean by busy men. You need not think that I allude only to those who are hunted out of the courts of justice with dogs, at the close of the proceedings, those whom you see either honourably jostled by a crowd of their own clients, or contemptuously hustled in visits of ceremony by strangers, who call them away from home to hang about their patrons' doors, or who make use of the praetor's sales by auction to acquire infamous gains which some day will prove their own ruin. Some men's leisure is busy in their country house or on their couch, in complete solitude, even though they have retired from all men's society, they still continue to worry themselves. We ought not to say that such men's life is one of leisure, but their very business is sloth. Would you call a man idle who expends anxious finicking, care in the arrangement of his Corinthian bronzes, valuable only through the mania of a few connoisseurs? and who passes the greater part of his days among plates of rusty metal, who sits in the palestra, shamed that our very vices should be foreign, watching boys wrestling, who distributes his gangs of fettered slaves into pairs according to their age and colour, who keeps athletes of the latest fashion. Why do you call those men idle? who pass many hours at the barbers while the growth of the past night is being plucked out by the roots, holding councils over each several hair, while the scattered locks are arranged in order, and those which fall back are forced forward unto the forehead. How hungry they become if the shaver is a little careless, as though he were shearing a man. What a white heat they work themselves into if some of their mane is cut away, if some part of it is ill-arranged, if all their ringlets do not lie in regular order. Who of them would not rather that the state were overthrown than that his hair should be ruffled? Who does not care more for the appearance of his head than for his health? Who would not prefer ornament to honour? 
Do you call these men idle, who make a business of the comb and looking-glass? What of those who devote their lives to composing, hearing and learning songs, who twist their voices, intended by nature to sound best and simplest when used straightforwardly, through all the turns of futile melodies, whose fingers are always beating time to some music on which they are inwardly meditating, who, when invited to serious and even sad business, may be heard humming an air to themselves. Such people are not at leisure, but are busy about trifles. As for their banquets by Hercules, I cannot reckon them among their unoccupied times, when I see with what anxious care they set out their plate, how laboriously they arrange the girdles of their waiters' tunics, how breathlessly they watch to see how the cook dishes up the wild boar, with what speed, when the signal is given, the slave boys run to perform their duties, how skilfully birds are carved into pieces of the right size, how painstakingly wretched youths wipe up at the spittings of drunken men. By these means men seek credit for taste and grandeur, and their vices follow them so far into their privacy that they can neither eat nor drink without a view to effect. Nor should I count those men idle who have themselves carried hither and thither in sedans and litters, and who look forward to their regular hour for taking this exercise, as though they were not allowed to omit it. Men who are reminded by someone else when to bathe, when to swim, when to dine, they actually reach such a pitch of languid effeminacy as not to be able to find out for themselves whether they are hungry. I have heard one of these luxurious folk, if indeed we ought to give the name of luxury to unlearning the life and habits of a man, when he was carried in men's arms out of the bath and placed in his chair, say inquiringly, Am I seated? Do you suppose that such a man as this, who did not know when he was seated, could know whether he was alive, whether he could see, whether he was at leisure? I can hardly say whether I pity him more if he really did not know, or if he pretended not to know this. Such people do really become unconscious of much, but they behave as though they were unconscious of much more. They delight in some failings because they consider them to be proofs of happiness. It seems a part of an utterly low and contemptible man to know what he is doing. After this, do you suppose that playwrights draw largely upon their imaginations in their burlesques upon luxury? By Hercules, they omit more than they invent. In this age, inventive in this alone, such a number of incredible vices have been produced already you are able to reproach the playwrights with omitting to notice them. To think that there should be anyone who had so far lost his senses through luxury as to take someone else's opinion as to whether he was sitting or not. This man certainly is not at leisure. You must bestow a different title on him. He is sick, or rather dead. He is only at leisure who feels that he is at leisure. But this creature is only half alive if he wants someone to tell him what position his body is in. How can such a man be able to dispose of any time? Chapter 13 It would take long to describe the various individuals who have wasted their lives over playing at drafts, playing at ball, or toasting their bodies in the sun. Men are not at leisure if their pleasures partake of the character of business. But no one will doubt that those persons are laborious triflers who devote themselves to the study of futile literary questions, of whom there is already a great number in Rome also. 
It used to be a peculiarly Greek disease of the mind to investigate how many rowers Ulysses had, whether the Iliad or the Odyssey was written first, and furthermore, whether they were written by the same author, with other matters of the same stamp, which neither please your inner consciousness if you keep them to yourself, nor make you seem more learned, but only more troublesome if you publish them abroad. See, already this vain longing to learn what is useless has taken hold of the Romans. The other day I heard somebody telling who was the first Roman general who did this or that. Julius was the first who won a sea fight. Curius Dentatus was the first who drove elephants in his triumph. Moreover, these stories, though they add nothing to real glory, do nevertheless deal with the great deeds of our countrymen. Such knowledge is not profitable, yet it claims our attention as a fascinating kind of folly. I will even pardon those who want to know who first persuaded the Romans to go on board ship. It was Claudius, who for this reason was surnamed Cordex, because any piece of carpentry formed of many planks was called Cordex by the ancient Romans, for which reason public records are called codices, and by old custom the ships which ply on the Tiber with provisions are called Codicaria. Let us also allow that it is to the point to tell how Valerius Corvinus was the first to conquer Messana, and first of the family of the Valeri transferred the name of the captured city to his own, and was called Messana, and how the people gradually corrupted the pronunciation and called him Messala. Or would you let anyone find interest in Lucius Sulla, having been the first to let lions loose in the circus, they having been previously exhibited in chains, and hurlers of darts having been sent by King Bacchus to kill them. This may be permitted to their curiosity, but can it serve any useful purpose to know that Pompeius was the first to exhibit eighteen elephants in the circus, who were matched in a mimic battle with some convicts? The leading man in the state, and one who, according to tradition, was noted among the ancient leaders of the state for his transcendent goodness of heart, thought it a notable kind of show to kill men in a manner hitherto unheard of. Do they fight to the death? That is not cruel enough. Are they torn to pieces? That is not cruel enough. Let them be crushed flat by animals of enormous bulk. It would be much better that such a thing should be forgotten, for fear that hereafter some potentate might hear of it and envy its refined barbarity. Oh, how doth excessive prosperity blind our intellects! At the moment at which he was casting so many troops of wretches to be trampled on by outlandish beasts, when he was proclaiming war between such different creatures, when he was shedding so much blood before the eyes of the Roman people, whose blood he himself was soon to shed even more freely, he thought himself the master of the whole world, yet he afterwards deceived by the treachery of the Alexandrians, had to offer himself to the dagger of the vilest of slaves, and then at last discovered what an empty boast was his surname of the Great. But to return to the point from which I have digressed, I will prove that even on this very subject some people expend useless pains. The same author tells us that Metellus, when he triumphed after having conquered the Carthaginians in Sicily, 
was the only Roman who ever had a hundred and twenty captured elephants led before his car, and that Sulla was the last Roman who extended the pomerium, which it was not the custom of the ancients to extend on account of the conquest of provincial but only of Italian territory. Is it more useful to know this than to know that the Mount Aventine, according to him, is outside of the Pimerium, for one of two reasons, either because it was thither that the plebeians succeeded, or because when Remus took his auspices on that place, the birds which he saw were not propitious, and other stories without number of the like sort, which are either actual falsehoods or much the same as falsehoods. But even if you allow that these authors speak in all good faith, if they pledge themselves for the truth of what they write, still, whose mistakes will be made fewer by such stories? Whose passions will be restrained? Whom will they make more brave, more just, or more gentlemanly? My friend Fabianus used to say that he was not sure that it was not better not to apply oneself to any studies at all than to become interested in these. Chapter 14 The only persons who are really at leisure are those who devote themselves to philosophy, and they alone really live, for they do not merely enjoy their own lifetime, but they annex every century to their own. All the years which have passed before them belong to them, and thus we are the most ungrateful creatures in the world, and we shall regard these noblest of men, the founders of divine schools of thought, as having been born for us, and having prepared life for us. We are led by the labour of others to behold most beautiful things which have been brought out of darkness into light. We are not shut out from any period. We can make our way into every subject. And if only we can summon up sufficient strength of mind to overstep the narrow limits of human weakness, we have a vast extent of time wherein to disport ourselves. We may argue with Socrates, doubt with Carneades, repose with Epicurus, overcome human nature with the Stoics, outherd it with the Cynics. Since nature allows us to commune with every age, why do we not abstract ourselves from our own petty fleeting span of time, and give ourselves up with our whole mind to what is vast, what is eternal, what we share with better men than ourselves? Those who gather about in a round of calls, whose worry about themselves and others, after they have indulged their madness to the full, and crossed every patron's threshold daily, leaving no open door unentered, after they have hawked about their interested greetings in houses of the most various character, after all, how few people are they able to see out of so vast a city, divided among so many different ruling passions? How many will be moved by sloth? self-indulgence or rudeness to deny them admittance, how many after they have long plagued them will run past them with feigned hurry, how many will avoid coming out through their entrance hall with its crowds of clients and will escape by some concealed back door, as though it were not ruder to deceive their visitor than to deny him admittance. How many, half asleep and stupid with yesterday's debauch, can hardly be brought to return the greeting of the wretched man who has broken his own rest in order to wait on that of another, even after his name has been whispered to them for the thousandth time, 
save by a most offensive yawn of his half-opened lips. We may truly say that those men are pursuing the true path of duty, who wish every day to consort on the most familiar terms with Zeno, Pythagoras, Democritus, and the rest of those high priests of virtue, with Aristotle and with Theophrastus. None of these men will be engaged. None of these will fail to send you away after visiting him in a happier frame of mind and on better terms with yourself. None of them will let you leave him empty-handed. Yet their society may be enjoyed by all men, and by night as well as by day. Chapter 15 None of these men will force you to die, but all of them will teach you how to die. None of these will waste your time, but will add his own to it. The talk of these men is not dangerous. Their friendship will not lead you to the scaffold. Their society will not ruin you in expenses. You may take from them whatsoever you will. They will not prevent you taking the deepest draughts of their wisdom that you please. What blessedness! What a fair old age awaits the man who takes these for his patrons! He will have friends with whom he may discuss all matters, great and small, whose advice he may ask daily about himself, from whom he will hear truth without insult, praise without flattery, and according to whose likeness he may model his own character. We are wont to say that we are not able to choose who our parents should be, but that they were assigned to us by chance. Yet we may be born just as we please. There are several families of the noblest intellects. Choose which you would like to belong to. By your adoption you will not receive their name only, but also their property, which is not intended to be guarded in a mean and miserly spirit. The more persons you divide it among, the larger it becomes. These will open to you the path which leads to eternity, and will raise you to a height from whence none shall cast you down. By this means alone can you prolong your mortal life, nay, even turn it into an immortal one. High office, monuments, all that ambition records in decrees or piles up in stone, soon passes away. Lapse of time casts down and ruins everything, but those things on which philosophy has set its seal are beyond the reach of injury. No age will discard them, will lessen their force. Each succeeding century will add somewhat to the respect in which they are held. For we look upon what is near us with jealous eyes, but we admire what is further off with less prejudice. The wise man's life, therefore, includes much. He is not hedged in by the same limits which confine others. He alone is exempt from the laws by which mankind is governed. All ages serve him like a god. If any time be past, he recalls it by his memory. If it be present, he uses it. If it be future, he anticipates it. His life is a long one because he concentrates all times into it. End of chapters 11 to 15